I've always loved the look of things, the the architecture of furniture and pieces, and it brings a lot of enjoyment to have things around you that either mean something. Most of the things have a story behind it. Yeah. Um, a lot of pieces, I'd probably say, came off a skip. <laughs> because whilst I was passing, I go, oh, what's that the leg of? And the next thing I know, it's in the back of my car and I've brought it home. You've got a, a lot of plates on the wall and things like that. Are you? Um, would you consider yourself a bit of a collector of certain... Um, types of things I think a collector there are types particularly um, blue and white and willow pattern which ties into the theme which I've always had of oriental Mm. pieces and particularly Japanese Um, the influence of Japan that came over to France in the late 19th century and a lot of the artists that used that the Gauguin's and the Monet's and the Van Gogh's who were influenced in their work Mm. and so it's all part of a theme That's nice. Do you feel that um, uh, there's any link to um, pieces that you've directed and you've worked on where Trinkets like this have been an influence on on your design. Oh, I I think definitely, as you can probably guess, I've I've got some favourite colours. And those (laughs) favourite colours, blue being one particular favourite colour. And uh, I did do a, a production of Into the Woods which I decided had to be completely midnight blue Mm. all the way through because it has, I think, quite a a sort of strange, eerie quality. Mm. It's interesting to see how those certain colours can be really effective within, um, you know, I'm, I'm fledgling in my directing career compared to you, but it's the idea of within a concept often certain colours can, can have quite an importance running through what you're doing. I, I started to notice this almost by accident years ago when I went to see film of Thoroughly Modern Millie mm. and I sat there thinking that whole scene has got a colour scheme to mm. it. That scene has got a colour scheme to it. And then you get into noticing the use of colour. And obviously, you know, we we know the obvious of sort of red for danger signs, but the way that colours and can bring out almost the smell of things or the feel of things. The film that I loved was... I can never get it right. The cook, <laughs> the cook, the thief, the something and the something. And it is extraordinary because the one thing that we don't get, although they've tried several times to do it, is sort of a smell mm. coming across from, from films. Smell of vision. <laughs> but that film in particular, um, and the other film, which is an all-time favourite, is the film Perfume. Mm. And you can smell that fish market at the beginning. <laughs> and you can smell the perfumes, but you're sitting watching a screen. Why Why does this? And I think colour and the use of colour and, of course, lighting plays a very great part in how things are perceived, mm. how you put the whole thing with theatre, with film, how you put your message across. How how can you tell an audience the story yeah. by visual means? It's, a, it's beautiful attention to detail then. When you were growing up, was um, were you always artistic? Were you someone who could draw and paint or was it more performance? I, I love... My first ambition was always to be an architect. And um, my father was always in favour of that. He had been a thwarted architect, if that's a possible (laughs) thing to be, purely and simply because he didn't have, and the family didn't have the funds to send him to college for long enough to become an architect. So he became a draftsman 
and a heating and ventilating engineer. But I grew up with a, a, a his 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 work in the house, and because he was heating and ventilating, all the all the hot pipes had to be in red pencil, all the blue <laughs> pipes had to be in blue pencil, because those were the days when you couldn't do it on the computer. Yes, you had to draw it. So his work was very meticulous. But growing up, we always had coloured pencils. Yeah. And his old plan sheets that he would bring home from work were the most massive pieces of white paper. Well, give any child <laughs> a large sheet of white paper and a lot of coloured pencils, they're going to do something with it. Mm. I think I read the other day, I think it was a Van Gogh. He's playing very heavily in this um, scenario. Yeah. And he said every child is an artist when it is born. It's just a case of maintaining that through their lives. So how, how did the transition come from artist on the white page to performer? I suppose there was always and open the fridge door syndrome with me. Open the <laughs> fridge door and Nicholas will do a turn. I love that. I think I was hyperactive. It's probably got sort of strange letters nowadays. I was I was probably a nightmare as a child because I wouldn't stay still and I was always doing something. And hopeless, absolutely hopeless at sports, although I love hitting a ball against a wall mm. and probably should have been a tennis player. But, um, you know, finances as usual were such that I never got enough training to be a tennis player. But I did want to dance. So I think my mother, out of desperation, said, well, why don't we take you to, you know the little local village dance school, and right. you can dance. Where did you grow up? I grew up in London. I grew up in South London. Right. Where we are now? I've ventured very little out of the um, environment that I, that I grew up in. And uh, so I went to the village school, and as usual, and as is the case with most boys going to a dance school, I was the only one. Uh, so, um, so I was heavily featured in the routine, <laughs> yes. because I was always in the middle. <laughs> you were South London's Billy Elliot, weren't you, Nick? I really? was, indeed. <laughs> and then, true to the Billy Elliot story... I went to the Royal Ballet School mm. because at the age of 11 and my parents said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to dance. So I did all the exams and uh, I went to the Royal Ballet School and was in a class with, I think, 23 girls and four boys. Wow. And uh, so I had the training from the Royal Ballet School, which was quite an experience i have i have to say there are there are various stories about sort of how you were treated when you were a dancer but uh, as i always say i don't think as bad as probably going to a russian ballet school would yes. have been <laughs> and i stayed with the ballet school for 4 years until the urge to dance just didn't seem to be that important anymore. Did that come one day or was that a gradual thing? I don't know. Do you turn around and go, do you know what, I don't want to dance anymore. Yeah. I just thought, this isn't for me. And in a way, looking back now, I think that the media of dance, albeit expressive, isn't necessarily the expression that I wanted. Mm. Um, surprisingly enough and you'll not believe this Gary when I tell you but I did like to talk <laughs> and of course ballet is one thing you can't talk it's in it's disciplined yeah to keep your mouth shut <laughs> and uh, and I I think there was the performer in me that wanted to express himself in a different way mm. I left 
to the total, total disappointment of sort of, you know, family and parents who had spent a fortune on this this training. But did say, if that's what you want to do. I then went to an all-boys public school to finish my education, which is a whole nother chapter in the book of wow. what it was like to go to an all-boys public school in the 19th... Oh, God, what? <laughs> in the 1970s, I suppose it was. Having come from the Royal Ballet School, mm. and there was, shall we say, not quite the tolerance that there probably would be mm. nowadays. But I found that they had, the school that I went to, had the most amazing drama department and all of a sudden I found a niche and um, was in the plays thinking oh I'll be the sort of you know third spear carrier on the left (laughs) but at least I was on stage and then we had a change of English teacher who were always the directors of the shows who um, came in, didn't know anyone, said, right, do an audition for me, read this, so and so and so and so, I'll go away and decide what play I'm going to do. Came back three days later, and we had a meeting, and he said, right, I've decided we are going to do a Shakespeare, and he said, there are various people that I know will fit into the part, but he said, "Um, I'd like you to take a copy away, and would you like to, you know, all have a read of it and then we'll finalise that we're going to do it. And um, he gave out these scripts and in the scripts were a piece of paper that said what character to read. Wow. And mine said Prospero. And so I took my copy of The Tempest and I went away and I read it. And I went in the following day having counted the lines that Prospero (laughs) has to say, (laughs) and said to this English teacher, did you get this wrong? And he said, why? And I said, well, Prospero has over 400 and something, (laughs) whatever it was, lines. And he went, no. He said, do you think you can handle it? And I said, yes. And he said, well, that's all that matters. Hmm. And out of nowhere, I was suddenly on stage doing a Shakespeare play at the age of 17, 16, 17, playing Prospero. Do you think that was a a pivotal moment for you? Oh, absolutely. And I've always wanted to find, because after we finished the, the show, he did come to me and he said, I never usually say this to a pupil, but have you considered going into the theatre? And I said, "Uh, well, I'd like to. And he said, I think you should. And to this day, and bless him, Mr Norman, if you are still around, (laughs) I would just like to say thank you because you actually made my mind up. So instead of going into architecture and instead of going into design, which my parents had hoped for, having had a thwarted ballet career, (laughs) uh, I went, I, I auditioned for every drama school, I think, in London and was turned down and they said go away and get experience of life well you say that to a 17 year old and you go what do you mean I know enough (laughs) about life (laughs) well of course you know I would have turned me down from a drama school had I auditioned you know you just go go, no you were unbelievably not ready for going to a drama school But that didn't stop me because somebody said, have you ever read a copy of the stage? And I said, no. And they said, it's a trade paper for, you know, the theatre. There are jobs there. And uh, so I got a copy of the stage, which I thought was going to be sold from sort of under the counter in a brown (laughs) paperback. Have you got a copy of the stage? I asked them in Smith's. Yes, it's over there. On... <laughs> so I got a copy of the stage. There was nothing like internet that you went on and no. looked for jobs. You looked at the back pages of the stage. 
and the Mermaid Molecule Theatre, which were the children's group of, of the Mermaid Theatre in London, which sadly isn't there in Puddle Dock anymore, and um, run by Bernard Miles, I believe, at the time. And the children's theatre was out on tour, mm. And um, I went and auditioned, and the lovely stage manager, who, who again, if you're listening, Chris Gabriel, thank you very much, um, said, we can't use you as an acting ASM because you haven't been officially trained, and yeah. we've got to take so many who have been trained. Yeah. But our company manager on the Mermaid Molecule tour has broken his arm. Could you go and be a pair of hands? <laughs> so I went and I did two, three weeks travelling round the Yvonne and mm. various places in Surrey. Somebody came up to me from the cast and quite officiously said, Are you equity? And I went, Uh... No. And he said, you should be. He said, don't worry, I'll get you all the forms. So he got me all the forms. I filled it in. I paid my dues and I was equity. Three weeks later, the job finished. And I came home thinking, well, that was a fun experience. The phone rang and... There was this woman saying, um, I've had it on very good authority from Chris Gabriel that you are amazing. We need someone on a tour. And um, can you start on Monday? And I went, yes. And she said, be in, be in Wilmslow at 10 o'clock on Monday morning. What? I put the phone down and I said to my father, where's Wilmslow? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, poor... Oh, that's a distance. And I said, can I be there at 10 o'clock on Monday morning? He said, if you leave early enough. And that was it. And I went on a tour with um, a terrible production. It wasn't a terrible production. It was just a terrible idea. (laughs) It was an Agatha Christie play um, called Fiddler's Three. I don't think Agatha Christie ever wrote anything <laughs> called Fiddler's Three. And it had, at the time, some very big TV names in it oh. who only the people of my era will remember. Peggy Mount, who used to be the sort of George and the Dragon Lady on TV, and Raymond Francis, who was in the first um, cop, No Hiding Place, which was the first cop series. All these people that I'd sat watching as I was growing up, suddenly I was in a production with them. And I was acting ASM, and the fact that I was backstage was good enough but I really wanted to be on stage. Mm. And I remember the lovely Peggy Mount saying to me, don't worry. She said, for years, I always wanted to act. And I was always the ASM. I was always the stage manager. And she said, I never thought it was going to happen. It will happen if it's right. And I came out of that show after 18 weeks, went straight into a show with yet again another sort of idol at the, at the time um, who was um, doing a show Ghost on Tiptoe with Robert Morley mm. and he'd written the play supposedly with the author Rosemary Ann Sissons and as the play progressed there was more Robert's writing than Rosemary Ann Sissons writing and how was that? It was it was a wonderful experience. We did we did nearly oh we did six months I think on tour, and then we came into the Savoy Theatre, and the Savoy Theatre was suddenly you know West End venue, and then we got the hiccup that Equity because in those days you had to do I think it was something like. Either 34 or 43, I can never remember, weeks on your equity card before you could ever come into town. Right. I think it was 32. 
And I'd done 30 weeks by this point. And Equity said, uh-uh, no, you can't come in to town. You haven't got enough points, enough weeks on your... Wow. And the lovely, lovely Ray Cooney, who was the um, management, uh, who coincidentally I met again about six months ago. Mm. And I went up to him and I said, Ray, I just want to thank you because you fought for me. And he actually found a loophole and said, ah, oh, any understudy going into a West End show doesn't actually have to perform mm. for the first two weeks. And so by the time Nicholas Tudor has done those two weeks, he will have a full equity card. Oh, so I went into the show... And I was understudying two parts in the show. One was of a policeman who was having a nervous breakdown. Right. And it was all, surprisingly enough, it was a comedy with Robert Morley. And um, the actor playing the policeman walked into a plate glass door oh. and knocked himself out. Oh, my God. I arrived at the theatre as usual thinking, oh, I better wash the teacups and do all the sort of bits and pieces that the ASM had to do. And they said, you're on. <laughs> well, the lovely Richard Omni, who I was understudying, was about six foot five. And I'm not quite six foot. So his entire uniform had to be taken up here and taken in there. And his helmet had to be padded with foam rubber. And I walked on the West End stage for the first time and uh, there was Robert Morley and William Franklin, who was the Schweppes advert man. And they looked at me and said, what a small policeman. <laughs> and from that moment on, they did not... I was extremely good. Yes. I knew all my lines, but they didn't seem to want to stick to them. Oh, and it was a real baptism of fire. Absolutely. Because Help the guy out. You just have to answer <laughs> what is said to you. I came off going, what's he doing? And the company manager said that was the greatest accolade because Robert wouldn't have done that if he didn't know you could cope with yeah, it. Yeah, he knew you were up to it. And and that was it. So, in fact, I don't know whether it's a record, literally 33 weeks into my equity card, I was on the West End stage. And were you, was, you know, going into the West End for you, was that a, was that a big deal? Or was it kind of you took it all in your stride, is it? I, I look back at it now and I think, do you know what? I just went, oh, this is... Just a natural progression. I didn't hold it up as, as a sort of be-all and end-all. I think at the time, when rep theatres were more in existence, there was a lot of better work going on as far as plays and subject matter. Hmm. Um, it was very much into the commercial theatre. And um, from there... Really, yeah, I made my home. I lived in the West. Lived in the West End. It seemed like I'd lived lived in the West End. Although I was still in South London. <laughs> yeah, it was just. It seemed very natural to to be doing it. Do you think there's more pressure on students and young performers now that the West End is the be all and end all? Oh yeah, far 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 more. And I did come across it with in conversations with students what do you want to do you know what do you want to be in oh I want to be in a hit West End musical or mm. a, and you go mm, that's almost a sign of the times it's it's being famous for being famous no go into a show that you want to do the work or you want to experience what it what it's all about I know that, and ironically, I've just noticed that Fiddler on the Roof is is back on at the Mernier Chocolate Factory and coming into town. And when I was working with students, doing sort of contextual studies, and I said, this is a show that 
could be revived. This is yeah, a few years ago. Mm. I was looked at like I was, um, you know, I had three heads. What would I want to go and do a show like that for? And I said, because actually it's a very interesting subject. It's a and, beautiful show. And yes, it's it's a musical, but my God, it, it has a lot of depth. It, it deals with the pogroms, it deals with, with anti-Semitism... It's it's it is very very sort of poignant. I think the sign of a, a piece, a great piece like that, is when it can continue to have themes which are relevant now. Mm, absolutely, I think I yeah. think that's the beauty of a piece like that. And I always talk about because it was one of my third year shows. Um, we did the musical version of um, Vedakin's Spring Awakening. Yes, and you look at you know that was written in the late nineteenth century, but you you can still completely understand the um, attitudes and emotions behind it all. Mm. Moving on slightly, is there a, a, a show or a piece of work that you've done that you would say in your heart holds the, um, the most prominent place? I think without hesitation, I would say A Little Night Music by Sondheim. I think it is one of the most complete works musically and story interwoven. I don't know what it is. I did see it when it first arrived from America with the wonderful Hermione Gingold um, playing Madame Armfelt. And it was an early piece of theatre for me to see. And that curtain went up and I was just gobsmacked Mm. by the whole thing. And one of the first full musicals that I ever... I think it was the first musical that I directed. And um, talk about a, a carrot... Mm. that was was dangled i was i was approached by um a drama school and said would i come and direct a little night music well that was it and i have to say of all the most per i didn't know these students i hadn't cast these students they'd mm. already been allocated um, their their parts and it was the most enjoyable experience and we did it in virtually a black box mm. so we didn't have all the advantages of, of lighting and, and I think if you do a piece that is stripped bare of the technical side mm. and find that it works so beautifully as as a piece and I just love it and I love his music for it I've struggled I have to say much as I love sometimes I have struggled (laughs) with a lot of his pieces when I first heard them and then you listen again and you listen to the words and you listen to how incredibly clever he has has been over the years with his with his lyrics and uh, but a little night music i have to say stands out more than any so what took you from um being a a, a performer into more of a creative role it, what what amazes me is with within the series of this podcast a lot of people have talked about a fortunate slash unfortunate event which has led to them doing something else so for example with the uh, company manager, with the, the fortunate for you, but unfortunate he'd uh, broken his arm, which yeah. then led to a, 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 a path for you. How did you get into well, creative side of things? Yet, yet again, it was, it was almost like a progression. In between doing West End shows, I worked quite a bit at the Players Theatre in London which did a sort of two-weekly bill, as they called it, of old-time music hall. Mm. I love doing... I think music hall is underrated to an extent of its influence in the progression of musical theatre. I think the, the Americans totally acknowledge how vaudeville yes. has influence. 
But having seen recently the film of Mary Mary Poppins 2, as I call it, um, <laughs> the whole the whole sort of you know Bert and it's not chimney sweeps in this one, it's lamplighters, and you go these are musical songs. These are actually you mm. know like any old iron and and all the rest of it. And the players had an amazing library of songs that you could dig through and go, I wonder if you could do this. It was getting a piece of music, taking it off the page. I mean, we know that sort of, you know, the instant sort of recognition of something like My Old Man Says Follow the Van or Any Old Aunt. But when you find another title that says, you know... He was only an humble barra boy. And you go, <laughs> this looks interesting. Sometimes you'd get a pianist to play it through and go, that's why we haven't heard of it before. <laughs> and, you know, you, you then go, no, I don't. And then you'd find a gem and you'd go, do you know what? Tell the story of this, interpret it. So I love the fact that you could find something and then create a piece out of it and I did on and off for a couple of years Um, I worked there and there was a lovely lovely director of the Players Theatre called Reggie Woolley who was a scenic designer I think we had a lot in common he had been a scenic designer and then he had by sort of accident more than intent He'd taken over directing at the Players Theatre. So he saw everything visually. And we talk a lot about, you know, how dimly he'd liked things. Sometimes you have to strain to see it. And he'd say, no, my dear. He said, this is, this is like a Victorian painting. Mm. It's old and it's dirty and London was full of fog. So we just... <laughs> not to put the lights up <laughs> and I saw him paint these pictures and at one point I'm sitting with him in the auditorium and I'm saying Reggie what, why have you done that like that and what if they came from over there and he turned to me and he said you know Nick my dear he said you must direct and shortly after that he said right I'm going off on holiday he said so I want a two-week break so he said you'd better direct something he gave it over to me to cast it to say what numbers were going to be in it he said you know the format my dear just do it he said I'll come back and make sure that it works before it opens and he did and he said you've done it Mm. I so loved that, and I did several. The Players Theatre was all pulled down when they redid Charing Cross Mm. development, and we moved to the Duchess Theatre for about two years, and that was was real West End theatre time. And I loved working working there and doing doing the um, two-weekly bills. And it was actually from that that somebody came to see one of the shows Mm. and it was one of those phone calls that said, I've seen your work, will you come and direct this for me? All of a sudden, I found that I was directing more than I was performing and I remember lovely Mariah Aitken, who I work with, and she said, oh, you're like me, she said, we enjoy directing because it allows us to bring out our bossy side (laughs) and it's true and it's true and I think there is shall we say a caliber of actors I'm not knocking actors but there's a caliber of actors who will do what they're told to do and there's a caliber of actors that will turn around and go um why um No, what if I did it like this? And I would find I was watching people on stage doing things, thinking, why are they doing it like that? Mm. Because they'll get a bigger laugh if they did that, or if they turned on that, or if we did double take. And I found I was helping so many directors going, "Mm -mm, no, no, it will work. Can I show you? It will work better if we do that. And I thought... They're getting all the credit for this. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, as I think the expression is, put your money where your mouth is, I went, okay, well, let's see. And and that was it. And so the creative process just sort of snowballed into becoming, using. I think there was, somebody said to me when I was... 16 and I'd written an adaptation of something and directed it and designed it and someone said you should be a director and I always thought it was a bit of a knock to be told I should be a director when what I wanted what I really was was an aspiring actor why should I be a director and I wish then that I had followed their advice but to me to not be an actor and to be a director. But now I see how right how right they were. And who knows? The path less followed or whatever yeah. the expression well, is. As a as a director, what are the, the kind of things that you you hope for in a good company? Imagination and also trust. Because if a director says, I'd like you to go over there and do this does mean that that performer yes they will go over there but if they go well I've gone over there because I was told to go over there it's working with people of like minds who you can say what about if you went and they work on the sort of their subtext and Mm. go yeah I could be doing this because I know why I'm going over there it's actually having that sensitivity. And there are certain actors that I've worked with that you go, oh, God, it's, it's just such a joy to work with someone like this. Mm. And there are others that you go, I never want to work with you again because you just don't get it. Well, it's, it's one of those things where you feel like you're coming to a dead end every two seconds. Yes. Yeah, um, and uh, one of the things you know, we worked together when I was at drama school, and I think trust is very important because it's it's having the ability to trust in the vision of the director, but then also knowing that you you build everything else on top of whatever the vision is. Mm. You build mm. that backstory mm. and that character. Mm. You you've worked a lot with um, students at drama schools. What do you think are the main differences between? working with students when they're still at drama school to when they're out in the big bad world. You do have a bit of a captive audience, as it were, (laughs) with drama school students. Yes. (laughs) Because they've got to be there and there there is, shall we say, a less possibility of them arguing with you. You can check their marks, can't you, really? You can say, you want to pass this? You do what I say. No, that's that's unfair. But I think there's also... I think there is that element with students that if if they are a good, devoted students, they are there to learn. And so in a way, they are... They absorb things... Having gone out into the profession, they've then got a lot of various influences that have that have come in. It doesn't mean that they necessarily change, but I think their focus sometimes is is different. On the other hand, you have got, whereas with a student, they're there and going, well, okay, so my marks won't be as good if I don't do what you want me to do. But in the profession, there's a pay package at the end of the week. So if they want to be employed, they're going to do that. It's still... Sometimes there is a difference. Sometimes I think it all... The other thing I would just say, because I literally just thought of it, is that if you're in the outside world, you've got different training elements coming in. Mm. 
So when you've got a, a body of students that have been working on a sort of not set syllabus, but in a certain way, you know how they're working. You go out into the outside world in a production and each performer has trained in a different way or not trained. And so you, it's, it's actually, I always say to be a director, you first of all have to be a diplomat and you have to be able to understand each person and how how they work. So there's more of a task with the director going, ah, they work in that way and that one works in that way. Whereas students in a sort of, you know, an acknowledged environmental sort of, you know, study group, you're working in the same way always. And I'd say that can come into play with the difference. So um, this podcast isn't just about the past or the or the future. It's also about the present. So tell me, Nick, what's how is life now? You know, what are, what are you up to? Life has changed to a certain degree. I came out of, shall we say, education and directing at drama schools. And realised that there was an awful, there were an awful lot of things that I hadn't fulfilled in me, mm. and you know my bucket list mm-hmm. <laughs> was getting longer and longer. Not of places to travel to in the world, but of things that I wanted to do, I wanted to achieve. The design side of my life had very much been put in on the back burner from the age of sort of. 17, 18 years old, whenever it was that I thwarted my parents' expectations and went into a terrible profession called the theatre. <laughs> and there had always been, as you can see, and as you, you know, and, and I love colour and I love things and I love architecture and I love gardens and everything. And um, I wanted to experience more of well what would have happened if and there was a program on the television which I was watching with a friend and I was going I could do that (laughs) I could do that and of course red rag to a bull really the friend said well go on why don't you do it then so I applied for the great interior design challenge and I was one of nine people in the country to actually be chosen. Tell mm. me um, some of your um, favourite places in the world. So, um, India. I loved India. I went there. We did, uh, in my acting days, I, I did quite a lot of work with the Greenwich Theatre. We did a production of School for Scandal it went on a tour of India for six weeks. So we went to six cities, um, a different city each week, and took the show, which is a lovely restoration piece here, and there are there are audiences for it. I was absolutely amazed by the audiences that we had in India because we had parties of school children and they understood every word. How was it culturally for you to be there? A lot of people said, oh, you know, you, you really will find, you know, it's a shock. The shock for me was not going to India. It was actually coming back from India and suddenly realising that you could walk down my high street and there weren't people sleeping on the streets or sleeping in the gutters. And there was a culture shock, but it was almost in reverse when I realised what the difference was having come come back. I just loved the whole atmosphere. I could understand why the British, much as they probably did, unspeakable things by their occupation of of the territories, but how they loved India. There is just such an extraordinary atmosphere and it's the colour, it's the it's the people. 
the contrast of poverty, of the wealth. I can remember being in Calcutta and going from the grimiest, dirtiest, potholed street with car fumes and sort of beggars and going into the Calcutta Racecourse, which was like something out of a film, wow. going through gates off the street and it was Ascot, and it was emerald green, and everyone was sort of beautifully dressed, all the, all the whatever they're called, the, um, the attendants, the stewards, mm. all in white uniforms. And I didn't approve that there was the, 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 the gap between the rich and the poor mm. is so vast and so sort of, you know, it's it, it takes you back, really, because you go, you've got all this money here, and just outside, the other side of a wall, you've got such poverty. But there were, there were experiences that... Somebody said to me, keep a diary. I never have kept a diary. I, I don't think someone, someone one day would publish it, so I haven't kept a diary. <laughs> Um, and um, but they said when you go to India keep a, keep a diary so I, I did religiously every night write down what I'd done during the day and of course this was back before you were born so now my memories are vaguer than uh, and I think did I do that I still have the diary. I pick it up and go, mm. oh, on Tuesday the 4th of March, because I was there in February, March. Um, there was snow on the ground then in England, and we were experiencing what is there, I suppose, an Indian summer, you'd call it. It was their summer, yeah. and it was the gardens were full of English flowers and roses, and, mm. and it wasn't too hot. Um and I would have forgotten what what I what I did. We went to see, of course, we were in Delhi, and we went to see the Taj Mahal, and that was. I I will always remember that because you just don't expect. It's been it's such a sort of hackneyed, reproduced image that when you do see it, and in the heat, and it is floating. Mm. And you just sit and watch it. Mm. It's it, it's quite. But having said that, there and it's so little known because the Taj Mahal is so famous. But within literally twenty minutes' ride from there, there is a completely deserted city called Fatipur Sikri, which is all in red sandstone, I think, and it is quite extraordinary it's like stepping into an Escher drawing right. it steps up and steps down and but it was I think the water dried up at some point and so the city was just abandoned and it is with in itself it is a very famous place but it's overshadowed so much by being 20 minutes away from the Taj Mahal no one talks about it right so I'm I'm promoting Fatipur Sikri. <laughs> you could be on the Indian tourist board. That's great. <laughs> so, um, what's the um, one thing if we were if we were to meet your 17 year old self? What's the one thing that you would say to him now um, about the journey? And what would you, you know, your word of advice to him? Well, I think going back to what I said about you know, someone said to me at 17. You know, oh, you should direct. I would say to 17-year-old me, don't dismiss what other people might say quite so readily and vehemently and think, how dare they say that, that a lot of advice or even comments that are made could actually be very beneficial to what you then become. Now, 
I think because I went through dancing and then acting and then directing, I I learned a lot on the way. And, you know, I know that from each, I learned a different discipline or a different sort of way of working with other people. Um, I just think that 17, a 17-year-old... 17 me should have listened maybe and taken a little more on board as to what direction and maybe not focus so so much on one thing but like I'm doing or have done since and that is throw the net wider and I think it's the one thing that I say to a lot of students and ex-students mm. that just throw that net wider and take in everything, mm. try everything. And I know that you as a musician and a singer and as a performer, I think there are so many different avenues that you can travel down. Yeah. Um, and do it, try everything. And um, the final question um, is... Uh, what is happiness for Nicholas Tudor? What is happiness? A contentment in what I'm doing. As long as I can stay busy, I'm not very good at sitting, doing nothing. I find holidays, and I love holidays, and I <laughs> love sunshine, and I do eventually learn to relax and do nothing. I would like to find that I was always occupied with with something. That's that's happiness, really. It's not necessary. I always think, well, what would happen if I did win the lottery and have vast amounts of money? Yeah, that would be fun. But it's not the be-all and end-all of my happiness I think my happiness is always having I I do say that if I did win the lottery the first thing I would do is buy some completely derelict mansion and do a capability brown on the landscaping of yeah. the grass I'd have to be doing something I'd have to use that money I do up the house I set up a you know, a, a society for the arts. I'd have entertainment and exhibitions because I couldn't just not do something and I'd want to plough it back into something creative. We'd like to say a big thank you to Jared Page from Stagey Pagey for the artwork, Itan Epstein Music for our introduction music, Audio Jungle and our podcast hosts, Buzzsprout. Any inquiries about the Behind the Pros podcast, please contact behindthepros at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and until the next time, thanks for listening. Listener.